I want everybody to just take a deep breath. Don't you? Because I know that it's not just our bell ringers that have been crazy busy, but probably every single one of you. And for some of you, even getting to this service tonight, I don't need to hear everybody's story on the way out, but I know that, that even that can be a big, big uh, uh, thing to, in order to do. We're glad that you're here. I hope if you've already begun Christmas that you've had some great feasting and eggnog and wassail whatever wassail is, and, and one of the things that uh, as, uh, as a pastor I enjoy is I, we get a lot of Christmas cards, and we look at every single one of them, and thank you if you sent us cards. If you didn't, don't feel guilty, don't go home and feel like you need to, but uh, I, I do appreciate all of them. We get a lot of them here at church, and uh, for some reason, as the senior pastor, I guess it's like you're the head of a business too, and we get some business-type ones, and I have to share with you um, my favorite one this year, uh, because usually when I can tell they're, they're from a business you know, you look at them and say, well, that's nice, you know, but it's, it's all imprinted, and so you don't think much of it. Well, I got this one uh, in the mail, and I looked at the return address, and it said, Royal Restrooms of the Carolinas. <laughs> and uh, it's okay, Connie, I'll bring it home later, we can put it with our stack, but... Uh, uh, and it's from Savannah, Georgia, and I'm, I'm not making fun of this business because uh, it's clearly a legitimate business because it's got this amazing picture on the front of the card and of this mansion, and it, uh, in front of the mansion are these very high-class porta-potties, so... Uh, <laughs> And there's like an air conditioner on top, I mean, and it says, Happy Holidays from the Royal Restrooms of the Carolinas. And so I, I couldn't stop there. I turned it over, and uh, it says, Royal Restrooms, a regal, portable restroom experience. And, and this, then this is what really got to my heart. Thank you for your business. I don't even know how to take that, so. <laughs> but if that doesn't get you in the holiday mood, I don't, I don't know what would. Uh, a few years ago, sociologists from Baylor University uh, released the results of a survey they had done with uh, the Gallup company. And uh, the survey summarized what they saw as the four 
views of people in terms of their view of God's personality and uh, his interaction with the world. And this is the summary of, of the four personalities uh, and interaction of God. Number one, those who believe in an authoritarian God who is angry at humanity's sins and engaged in every creature's life and world affairs. So authoritarian, angry at humanity's sins. 31.4%. The second category, <clears throat> those who believe in a distant God who is more a cosmic force that launched the world then left it spinning on its own a little over 24%. Thirdly, those who believe in a critical God who has his judgmental eye on the world, but he's not going to intervene either to punish or to comfort. 16%. And those who believe in a benevolent God who is forgiving and accepting of anyone who repents, 23%. Now, here's the thing as, as I look at this. And I, I suspect that all four of those views are represented here tonight. Maybe you heard one of those views and says, yeah, that's, that's what God is. What that's saying, if this survey, if it's true at all, is that 77% of people hold to one of the other views of God where uh, he is not described as benevolent or forgiving or accepting of those who repent. That's a lot. That's more than, than three in every four people. The Scripture says this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, that summarizes the doctrine of the Incarnation. The Incarnation is the doctrine that says that God became flesh, incarnate. In the flesh, God became flesh. And that, there are are many doctrines that surround what we do at Christmas, what we sing about, but that is at the very core of what we celebrate as Christians from the biblical perspective of what Christmas is It's a celebration of of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Now, I want to briefly take you back through those four views of God. And I want to show you how a right understanding of the incarnation will actually correct a wrong view of God and his interaction with God. His world. So what does the incarnation say to those who believe in an authoritarian God 
who is angry at humanity's sins. Some of you, when you heard that, probably said, yep, that's, that's what I think. See, God is, is in, in your view, just an overbearing father who is out to spoil your enjoyment in life. He's angry at you. And he's going to take out his anger in one way or another. Or maybe because of something that happened to you this year, you might think he is taking out his anger on you. And you said, well, that, that must be then what's going on because of what I'm, I'm going through. Now, you compare that to the God of the Bible who was with the Holy Spirit and the Son and made this plan to save His people from their sins. Here's the plan. I will send you, Jesus. And you, Jesus, will become one of them. And Jesus did it willingly. Yes, that's the plan. Augustine said, since you, a human being, could not reach God, but you can reach other humans, you might now reach God through a man. And so that the man, Christ Jesus, became the mediator of God and human beings. Now here's the rest of the plan from the Bible. The Father is going to satisfy His wrath, but He's not going to satisfy it by taking it out on us. As a righteous God, as a holy God, there must be wrath against sin. But with this plan... Jesus came, and he was wounded so that we don't have to be. That's the God of the incarnation, not an authoritarian God who is angry at humanity's sins and unwilling to deal with them. The second view in terms of how the incarnation speaks to it, uh, those who believe in a distant God who is more a cosmic force that launched the world and then left it spinning on its own. A long time ago, they called that deism. We don't use that term very much uh, anymore. But the idea was, okay, well, yeah, God created, but then he kind of like took the world kind of like a top. And some of you are old enough to remember those tops. I could never get them to, to spin and to stand up. But you, you, you spin it, and then it, it keeps spinning. And, and so the deist view is God did that. He gave the world a big spin, and, and then he just kind of steps back and, and is watching what's going on. Sometimes disgusted, rarely pleased, but unwilling to do anything 
with the world. He's just watching. The doctrine of the incarnation flies in the face of that kind of an uninvolved God who doesn't want to relate or to be tainted. Instead, we we see, for instance, in Hebrews 4 where it says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. So what it's saying is our high priest isn't somewhere out there. He's not that distant God, but he's one that has been here and felt what we have felt, experienced all that we have experienced. He understands our weaknesses, our temptations, our pain, our losses, our stresses. Dorothy Sayers, a British essayist and novelist, said this number of years ago, the incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death, He's nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he's not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain, all for us. And he thought it well worth his while. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. And here's the point. God came so close that he would understand us. He is not that distant God who is unwilling to rub shoulders or to be tainted by his people. And then thirdly, the incarnation speaks to uh, those, that group that would believe in a critical God who has his judgmental eye on the world, but he's not going to intervene either to punish or to comfort. Do you get that? They're saying he's he's not going to He's not going to do anything. He's he's critical of us and this world. But there's no hope there. Now, some people take comfort in believing that, that God is not involved in the world. Whenever there's a disaster, there will inevitably be editorials of people trying to protect God, saying, It's He's not involved, it's not His fault. And yet, the incarnation speaks to this kind of a a, a critical God. Here's the problem with a God who is critical and judgmental, but not willing to intervene to punish or comfort. If that's the case, if he will neither punish nor comfort, there's no reason to pray. If if you hold to this view, don't bother praying. Because he's not going to do anything. He won't. He's just out there 
and he's not going to respond anyway, don't bother yourself with prayer. But here's the other thing. If there is no punishment for evil, if there is ultimately no punishment for evil, then evil wins. And it takes away our sense, that our sense where uh, many of us look at what's going on in this world and we, we know down deep, it can't end this way. There's a better ending to God's plan than this. The incarnation shows that he is absolutely going to intervene. The God of the universe chose rather than to be out there, rather than to play it safe, he chose to be known, to be uh, so sent that we could know him better. The rest of that verse, we have seen his glory. Glory as, uh, as the only son from the Father full of grace and truth. And that leaves us with the other view that's presented. What's the incarnation say about those who believe in a benevolent God who is forgiving and accepting of anyone who repents. Now, to simply say he's a benevolent God is not giving him uh, credit for his holiness and his justice. But to say he's forgiving and accepting of anyone who repents acknowledges that there is a righteous standard a righteous standard that has to be met. And the incarnation means God sent Jesus in order to meet his own standard. Let's face it, if, if Jesus didn't come, then this time of year, all it would do is just more and more remind us of our moral failures. Think about it. We can't even meet Santa Claus's standard. Have you ever thought of that? You got to be good enough to earn your gifts. And most of us, if you're anything like I was as a kid, I thought, oh boy, I'm in trouble. I, you know, and I would tell every Santa I met, yes, of course I was a good boy this year, hoping against hope that he would bring me gifts even though I wasn't good enough. And so we all fail. When John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word translated dwelt literally means this. He pitched his tent among us. Now, if you ever go camping and you go to pitch your tent, if you're a good camper, you're going to try to find the best, most comfortable, protected place to pitch your tent, the most level and, and so on. You're not going to pick the worst place. When Jesus pitched his tent among us, he didn't look for comfort 
he put it right smack in the middle of his people who sin, who when the light came into the world, hated the light. In fact, that word is often translated, he tabernacled among us. Why use that term? Well, it wasn't any accident. Because the tabernacle in the Old Testament was that huge tent. It was that huge tent that was right in the middle of God's people. It was the place of worship. It was the place of sacrifice. It was beautiful. And everywhere in the camp, because they always camped around it, everywhere they were, they could look and they could see the tabernacle and they they could say, God is among us. Because the Holy of Holies is right there in the middle. And it was a reminder to them. And what it was, was an absolute living picture of Christ. If you knew what you were looking at. How important was the tabernacle? Well, in the Old Testament, there's two chapters about the creation of the universe. And there are 50 about the tabernacle. That's how important this picture was. And Jesus is that tabernacle. This isn't a new religion. It's not a religion at all. He is this tabernacle. This one who took on flesh and dwelt among us. He is the God of grace. And the Father sent His one and only. That's the incarnation. And that's what we celebrate tonight and tomorrow. And that is our only comfort in life and death. Let me leave you with this. If there was no incarnation, then one of those first three views is true. God is either that authoritarian God or he's distant or he's critical and uninvolved. But God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we can thank him because that is our only hope in life and death. Let's bow together. Lord, how we thank you that you are not that distant or critical or authoritarian God who despises his creation. And the very fact that we could not get to you, you saw fit to come to us. And in that we rejoice. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Christmas, perhaps more than any other time of the year, is a time of traditions.
time when families gather and repeat things year after year after year. We have traditions here at St. Andrews, certainly during this time of year, and sometimes traditions get a bad rap. Traditions are good in that they can help us pass down truth from generation to generation. So tonight we conclude with a special tradition here of candle lighting and carols. And the way that we're going to go about this is the ushers will come forward in a moment, and we will take our first light from the Christ candle of our Advent wreath, signifying that Christ came into the world, light into darkness, and then distributes that light to his people as he saves them. So too, we will distribute that light from that center candle throughout the sanctuary as you pass the light one to another. And while we're doing that, we'll sing the first verse of some familiar carols. So would you stand now and join together in singing some of these carols as we light.
In the beginning, there was darkness, there was void, there was nothingness. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Light burst into the universe and to the world because he said so. We go through the Old Testament and and places like the tabernacle had places of light pointing to another light that was to come. But the promise came again and again. But the light himself did not come. And then we get to the, the end of the Old Testament and there's silence, there's darkness. 400 years, generations of silence. And then a light burst onto the scene. He was not the light, but he pointed toward the light. And that light that he pointed toward, that the tabernacle and uh, the temple, that all of the promises of the Old Testament pointed toward, that light was Jesus who said, I am the light. And then, when he provided for that great salvation, he said, for you who trust in me, now you are the light. And you are to take your light to the world. If we were to cover our lights, I'd be careful if you do that, but it It keeps our sanctuary from being fully lit. But then if we uncover them and we lift them up, you see it lights all around us. And this is what we are called to do as we go from here to take our light, the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him, and sharing that light with our world. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we thank you for the glorious light that you have given to us. And now, children of the living God, will you reach out and receive the Lord's benediction. And now, may he who is light give you light tonight as you take it with you, that you can share with those around you. And God's people said, Amen.